Well, there are two types of people you're going to find in the country. Those who are dead against NHI for their own reasons and those who are for the NHI for obvious reasons. Hello, commuters. I'm Jessica Van Onslen, and welcome to another episode of the podcast that looks at big ideas from a South African perspective. Watching our new Minister of Health, ANC veterans William Keyes on TV, talking about the National Health Insurance Bill he's just introduced, I was reminded of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Specifically, the scene in which King Arthur encounters the Black Knight, who challenges him to a sword fight. None shall pass. But I must cross this bridge. Then you shall die. King Arthur summarily cuts off the Black Knight's arms. Unfazed by this new reality, the Knight simply dismisses the injuries as a mere scratch and keeps fighting. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. It is but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. But what's that then? I've heard worse. You liar. Come on, you pansy. King Arthur then cuts off his legs, leaving the furious stump of a knight still spewing fighting words, denying there is any problem. Look, you stupid bastard, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look, just a flesh wound. Look, stop that. This famous scene came to mind when William Voko interviewed the new health minister recently on his talk show. Keyes happily admitted that the South African public health care sector is already in a dire state, and that's before adding in one of the most ambitious and expensive new healthcare management programs the world has ever seen. Just take a listen to this clip from the interview from August. Here you've got challenges in the health sector, uh, health, uh, public health sector, staffing issues, uh, supply of medicine, quality issues, management issues, infrastructure issues, uh, organization of the health services, financing issues, all of those issues are on the table. We want to sort all of those issues out and then we use the guideline of what we need for NHI to guide us where, how far we need to revamp all of these services. Whiskey, Tango, Alpha, Foxtrot. Let's just slow down what he said there. Minister M. Keyes just confirmed that the public health care sector currently has staffing issues, medicine supply issues, quality issues, management issues, organizational structure issues, infrastructure issues, and financing issues. If it were me being asked to address that sort of clusterfuck in my new job, I would immediately develop a cough syrup drinking problem. The ANC has not managed to solve these issues in the quarter century it has been in power. But M. Keyes, no problem, a mere scratch. We want to sort all of those issues out and then introduce the NHI. So, the minister blithely blushing past these painfully complex issues in his rush to introduce the NHI makes me feel like I'm watching Monty Python. McKees is the Black Knight, undeterred by the clear constraints of reality. I'm invincible! You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs! How about you? Come on then. The Acedemeni life scandal with the deaths of 143 people in psychiatric facilities in the Gauteng province, dying from starvation and dehydration, a mere scratch. Worsening problems of critical drugs being out of stock or unavailable in state hospitals, just a flesh wound. Critical machines, such as CT scanners, breaking and never being replaced in state hospitals. Let's keep going. And then, of course, there's a deeply distressed economy and a dwindling fiscus. On a more serious note, one question to ask is why the ANC is introducing the National Health Insurance Bill now, after all these years of talk. Well, frankly, 
The party is desperate to distract from the deep sense of hopelessness that has settled over South Africa since the Zoom apocalypse. Because it's becoming clear that the ANC loves legislating and giving speeches, the flashy stuff, which doesn't generally take that long, and is rubbish at actually governing anything, the thankless hard work that takes decades of hard slog, they need a distraction. And unveiling a brand new shiny idea has been the ANC's go-to strategy for years. Let's talk about this new gleaming policy and stop talking about the State Capture Commission or Ramaphosa's campaign or totaling up the bailouts to the SEOs or about everyone who died at Life Essedemeni. But I think as citizens, we're all tired of new ideas. We just want the basics of the state to function. There might also be another reason the ANC is suddenly interested in passing a law which makes the government the one and only provider of health care in the country. And that reason, I have to say, is the profits of the private healthcare sector. I'm going to pick on Discovery, although the problem is not limited to Discovery. They're just the biggest and the most visible. Last financial year, Discovery reported a profit of around 9 billion rand. Now, if you read more about this, the economics of the healthcare insurance sector are actually fiendishly complex. And how profitable Discovery's health business actually is is something that journalists like Rob Rose have started to sniff around. But one thing that cannot be denied is that from the outside, it looks obscene. It looks like capitalism at its most profligate and its most predatory. Billions of rands for profit for private health care is not a good look in any society, but especially not in the most unequal one on earth. Health is so intensely personal. It's so linked to dignity and privacy and so profoundly frightening when it's at risk. Health is existential. Do I want a society where capitalism looks like it's making billions of rands of profit off my need for a doctor? No, I don't. It makes me want to set up that monthly debit order to the SACP right this minute. But do I want a society where the NC government basically outlaws medical aids? and declares itself your one and only big healthcare brother, even if that big brother has a serious kleptomania problem and massive credit card debt. I don't think I want that either. My guest to talk about the NHI is Anthea Jeffrey, Head of Policy Research at the South African Institute of Race Relations, a think tank in Johannesburg. There can be few people who keep more of a hawk eye on the route that ANC policies follow as they wind their way into law than Anthea. Anthea Jeffrey, it's so great to have you on the commute. Thank you, Jessica, and hello to you and all your listeners. When I saw the NHI bill was out, and when I looked into it a little bit and read some of the details of what's being proposed, my first feeling was to ask the question, is the ANC actually at war with the middle class? Because it's certainly starting to feel that way. I expect that, that there are people in the middle class who do increasingly feel that that is the case. And largely it has to do with the fact that we have a very small tax base. So about 2% of individual taxpayers are paying about 70% of all the personal income tax that's brought in, plus a hefty chunk of that. And in return for that, they receive very little from the state. They do pay for private education, for private health care, for private security, and so on. And private health care, I think, is particularly important to the middle class. So there's now a growing sense that the NHI is going to really put private care under so much state control that it may no longer function very well. And that if that were to happen, one fears that the middle class will increasingly 
be tempted to emigrate given all the other policy pressures and economic pressures that there are on that rather small group of skilled people in any event. I want to circle back to immigration, but there is nothing as almost existential as health care. It's already appalling enough that primary health care in, in this country is not what it could be. Obviously, um, the majority of poor black South Africans are asked to grapple with having little to no health system already. But when you start to break down the infrastructure of private health care, which, which is on the whole good and does attract some of the top minds in the world, it, it does feel like the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes, I think there's a real risk of that. If people were more confident that the NHI would work well, then that would be a different thing. But instead, I think there's a legitimate fear that it's not going to be adequately financed, that there are not going to be enough healthcare resources to really make a success of it, and that at the end of the day, the kind of inefficiency, lack of accountability, corruption that has so plagued the public health care system will come to affect all health care in South Africa. The cynic in me thinks that the ANC almost enjoys putting out policies more than it enjoys any other aspect of its obligations as the ruling party. And to detract perhaps from its large governance failures, it's just another out there policy. I imagine that it's supposed to be populist, although I'm not even sure if it is that popular, actually. But can you just talk to us a little bit about the history of where did this idea of a national health insurance actually come from? The ANC has been talking for a very long time about introducing a comprehensive social security system and uh, reforms to healthcare were supposed to be part of that. But I think that until 2007, the Polokwane Conference, the idea was not really to get rid of, of private medical schemes, um, but to allow those to play a supplementary role to whatever was done via a new uh, health system controlled by the state. But since 2007, we've been moving increasingly to the idea that medical schemes should really come to an end. Our former health minister, Dr. Aaron Mazzoletti, talked about consolidation of medical schemes in the run-up to the NHI becoming fully operational. And at that point, he said the, the remaining medical schemes would all be collapsed into the NHI fund so that there would be a single medical aid plan for all South Africans. And that's what the government has really been working towards since Polokwane. We saw it in a green paper in 2011, in a draft white paper in 2015, a final white paper in 2017, the NHI bill that was tabled last year, and now in the, the current version of the NHI system. All right, but the concept of actually effectively barring private medical care is relatively new in the evolution of this concept. In fact, could you talk us through what some of the key points of this bill are? Well, let's start with, with the role that medical schemes are expected to pay. Uh, according to the NHI bill, once the NHI is fully operative, medical schemes will be confined to playing a complementary role. In other words, they'll be able to cover health services that complement those covered by the NHI, not duplicate them. And we don't know yet what benefits are going to be offered by the NHI. But certainly the 2017 white paper had a very long list, very comprehensive list, including things like organ transplants and um, coverage for rare diseases such as haemophilia. So if the benefits are indeed very comprehensive, then the medical schemes will be left with very little that they can cover. 
for example, public health there doesn't cover renal treatment for dialysis, rather for those with renal failure who are over the age of 60. Mm. So that's something that medical schemes could cover, presumably. But on the other hand, there's not enough demand for that particular service for it to be cost effective. So between the very high costs of that kind of medical scheme cover and the very high taxes that will have to be paid in order to fund the NHI, medical scheme membership will simply become unaffordable, which means that most medical schemes will indeed be collapsed into the NHI fund, as Dr. Mazzaladi foresaw. Some analysts have speculated that the fund would cost upward of, I mean, I heard 256 billion rand was the one figure. Would taxes have to go up? I presume they'd have to go up to fund this extremely expensive endeavour. Indeed, that 256 billion figure was first cited by the government in the Green Paper in 2011. So it's a very outdated figure. It was Ah, developed in 2010 and it was apparently a thumbsuck by a consultancy. Uh, which was just trying to work out what it could possibly be. And of course, it's a figure that's entirely outdated now, especially because uh, medical costs in both the public and the private sector go up up by at least 6% every year. Uh, So at the moment, we see that public health care is budgeted at 220 billion for the 2019-2020 financial year. Private healthcare is expected to cost 250 billion, with a bulk of that going to to medical schemes, about 207 billion. And there certainly is a suggestion that if we want to have the same quality of care as is now available in the private healthcare system, then you need at least that amount of money as we're spending this very year. And that would amount to sort of 470 billion rand. That's just the current sector. That's the current. So by the time the NHI became fully operative in 2026, if you imagine healthcare costs going up by 6% a year, it's very much more than 470 billion by 2026. And Dr. Zvelian Kiza, our current health minister, introducing the bill in parliament last week, also spoke about he thought that we would need more than the current cost of public and private healthcare to fund the NHI properly. So it, it really could be a very huge figure maybe even trillions. It could be trillions. In, in fact, Dr. Aaron Mozzaledi did say that it all depends on, on how the NHI is designed, that the annual cost could be as high as one trillion. Um, if one looks at what the Davis Tax Committee came up with, which is another possible uh, funding model, they looked at the issue in 2017, how much would it finance, how much would it cost to fund the NHI? And they came to the conclusion that you would need at least 165 billion rand in additional revenue. And there's been some costing by uh, consultancies on on how you could raise that 165 billion. And one of the the analyses put forward is that we then have to have a payroll tax of close to 3% per person. We'd have to have a surcharge on income tax also of about 3%. And we'd need to raise the VAT rate, which is now at 15%, to about 19 or 20%. And since the government will be very reluctant to raise the VAT rate, uh, one could only imagine how high the surcharge on personal income tax or payroll tax might have to go to cover the kinds of, of money 
that's likely to be an issue. Mm. So the financial aspect is nothing short of terrifying. And I think if we look at the realities of funding national health services in countries like Australia, Canada and, and the UK, I mean, those costs are just soaring in an almost uncontainable way, although the systems all seem to still remain viable. But if we step away from the money side of things, one of the things that I found frustrating about the debate about the NHI is that I think a lot of the critics and analysts who are raising concerns about it are basing those concerns on governance questions and capacity questions. Is this a government that is in the right position to be able to roll out one of the most ambitious um, projects you know you can think of in the continent, if not the world, in, in the coming years. But the ANC's response has been to say, oh, well, if you raise queries about the NHI, you are morally opposed to extending good health care to the poor, which is, of course, I don't think anyone is uh, or any decent person is raising a moral objection. And that's partly why I feel that the exchange between in the debate has not been as satisfying as it could be. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. That's very much part of the problem because critics of the NHI are not in any way opposed to universal health coverage. They just have real questions as to whether the NHI is the best way of achieving it. And very much um, in the context of a, a public health care system that is well-funded but functions very poorly, we're spending at the moment, as I said, $220 billion on public health care which is 12% of the overall budget and 4% of GDP. And that's a considerable amount of money for an emerging market. But we just get far too little bang for our rather extensive buck. And that is because, in essence, we have such a high level of inefficiency. People are appointed because of their political loyalties to the ANC. In other words, they deployed cadres rather than, than people who necessarily have the experience of the and the capacity to run the system properly. We have a great deal of inefficiency compounded by corruption. We have um, often quite uncaring attitudes within the public service. And in addition, we have an inability to comply even with such basics as the maintenance of hygiene. Um, I think it's one of the most distressing aspects that according to the Office of Health Standards Compliance, which is a government body set up some years ago to try and improve efficiency in the public service. Its job is to monitor a certain number of public clinics and hospitals every year. And the last study that it did, it looked at approximately 696, if I recall, public clinics and hospitals, and came to the conclusion that only five of them complied adequately with these basic health care norms oh, and standards. God which include things like the availability of medicines, maintaining standards of hygiene, what staff attitudes are like, um, security for patients. Yeah, and there's also, when thinks of Isidemeni life, which was just a horror of failure of, of sort of duty of care around vulnerable people in our society. And then also, wasn't it true that the Department of Health in KwaZulu-Natal did not have was it a CAT scanning machine, a CT scanning machine for years, and so was unable to treat cancer patients? I think they've got one now, but they went for months without that key equipment. Exactly, yes. I think Life Estimandi isn't a, a really worrying example where uh, we're told now that there was adequate money in the Gauteng health budget, and people were nevertheless shunted off to unqualified NGOs with no accountability by the provincial department, and with the result that at least 144 people died. In the most appalling circumstances. Yes. Often you know, they were dehydrated. They, they died because they didn't have enough to drink. 
it'll learn enough to eat, um, let alone any other kind of, of care. And in relation to KwaZulu Natal, you're quite right. It was machinery needed for oncology department, and it simply wasn't maintained. And part of the reason for that was also why people are now worried about the NHI, because there was an element of BEE preferential procurement in that maintenance contract, and the people who were appointed to do the job didn't do it, and the health department didn't compel delivery. And so we just had for years the machinery not being available. And so when we have the NHI having to take responsibility for paying for all the goods and services that are needed to provide healthcare to 59 million South Africans, there's a real risk that very often it's going to go wrong. Um, simply because the procurement office is not going to be able to manage the magnitude of the procurement challenge. And because all procurement contracts are going to be subject to a BEE element. And unfortunately, we know that uh, that does contribute to fraud and inflated pricing. And in fact, the chief procurement officer in the National Treasury, Kenneth Brown, said in October 2016, which is now about three years ago, that he was deeply concerned that up to 40% of the state's procurement was tainted in this way by flawed and inflated pricing. And that was a massive amount on a 600 billion budget at that point. So one has to be very clear and very sure that the revenue made available to the NHI fund is going to be adequately, properly used and not wasted in any way. And current performance in the state, in healthcare in particular, in the wider public service beyond that, just doesn't raise any confidence that this can be achieved. Mm. I think the supply chain point is such a brilliant one, Anthea, because it's not just the ambition of patient care and actual contact with patients that, that I think makes, makes people anxious, but it is the size and vastness of complexity of medical supply chains. Um, you know, things that some certain medication needs to be ordered, you know, years in advance, you have to hold stockpiles and some stock moves turns around extremely quickly you know bandages and syringes etc it really is an extremely complex endeavor and and the ANC has not demonstrated itself at being really fantastic at supply chain management in other contexts um certainly I was living in the eastern cape they they really battled to <laughs> execute collecting the rubbish so i think mm. that a lot of concern around the supply chain is is valid and that will affect the quality of care directly i imagine Absolutely, because um, if suppliers are not paid on time, for example, even assuming that there's no element of fraud or inflated pricing in the contracts, but suppliers are not paid on time, then they can't keep delivering. And that's one of the key reasons why we have so many stockouts in the public health care system at the moment. And those stockouts could extend right across health care if that kind of problem is not resolved. And the ANC has been talking for years now of making sure that people get paid within 30 days. But it remains an ongoing problem which simply hasn't been resolved. Mm. Just to return to the question of inflation, artificial inflation, or maybe corrupt inflation in the medical equipment and, and services industry. One of the things that I was wondering, you know, Discovery Health has been reporting astonishing profits. It's a very successful company, although some analysts have said if you actually analyze Discovery's results, 
it's not always the medical aid that is coping that well with rising costs. Nevertheless, it clearly does appear to the outsider to be a hugely profitable industry. Do you think that perhaps the, the hyper-capitalism of the South African medical industry has attracted the ANC's eye? Either morally, let's give them the, the benefit of the doubt and say morally this industry is a bit out of control with its profits. Or more cynically, we'd like to take a slice of that pie for, for ourselves and our cadres. I think it's more the latter. I, I think that there's been a great deal of, of um, hostile rhetoric against private health care um, to the extent that there may be padding in discovery or other medical schemes. I think the solution is to have very much more competition so that uh, medical schemes are under pressure from the public to bring down their administrative costs as much as possible. I think it's also true that the government has tended to push up the cost of medical scheme membership through its own regulation. For example, by insisting that all medical schemes must cover these prescribed minimum benefits, which have to be paid for in full. And uh, that has made it very difficult to, to bring costs down to a level which more people would feel more comfortable with affording. And it's not something that the government ever acknowledges. In fact, um, the Council for Medical Schemes did try to get around this problem a number of years ago in 2015, when it suggested introducing a low-cost medical scheme that would not have the prescribed minimum benefits, that would have brought the costs down to about 200 rand per person per month. And the Council believed that it would make it possible for 15 million more people to join medical schemes. And it was going to introduce it in January 2016, but the ANC seemed to be deeply miffed. We, we never got anything directly on the record, but the indication was that the word had gone out to the council that this was not acceptable, and presumably because it would be a competition to the NHI if so many more people were having their, their primary health care needs met through the private sector, then there would be less reason to for them to, to think that the NHI is a good thing. As it is, medical scheme costs have been pushed up very high, perhaps because some uh, age, some of the, the companies are, are trying to extract more profit than is reasonable, but very much also because of regulation. And if the ANC won't allow a low-cost option, then that really smacks of it being driven more by ideology than anything else. And the same when it comes to the low-cost primary insurance policies, which are also at the moment providing poorer households with access to primary private treatment at a cost of about 200 per person per month. But those are also to be phased out by the government. It's very hostile to the idea that these low-cost options should be available. And then Without those low-cost options, it's, of course, much easier to say that medical scheme membership is becoming too expensive for anyone to afford. And that's why we must have the NHI. Mm. But it seems unfortunate that even if it's not an optimal solution, extending these low-cost medical schemes to some of the middle class and the lower middle, the working class, that mm. you would be tackling some part of inequality. But by refusing and backing out and holding out for a perfect NHI, which would really address inequality. People in the middle are, are, are kind of being um, cheated of their opportunity to get slightly better health care in the interim before the fantasy arrives. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's right. And you know, at the end of the day, the government's capacity to run this, this sort of uh, bureaucratic behemoth that it's planning with the NHI is so questionable 
that it's it has to be a better option that one should extend uh, medical scheme membership to many more people at the same time as you take effective action to improve the inefficiencies in the public system so that um, giving more people at the lower end of, of the, the income spectrum access to medical schemes and private primary care would reduce the burden on the public system. Then you could also increase the efficiency of the public system and you'd have a much better option just with that. In addition, the, the ANC was at one point talking about making it compulsory for all everybody who's in formal employment to join a medical scheme. And it's possible that that would bring down the costs by about 20% in itself. But they're not saying that now. What they're instead talking about is bringing an end to all medical schemes. And that just seems uh, not the right approach to a complex problem in the context of a state with very limited funding and very limited capacity. Mm. So we're seeing one of the effects is certainly a spike in uh, talk and action around immigration and not just white South Africans immigrating, but skilled black South Africans, engineers, lawyers, doctors, a bit spooked by that and starting to a bit, a bit spooked by this conversation and starting to make plans. But there's another side to this, which is, of course, that healthcare providers who are extremely globally mobile, their skills are wanted just about everywhere else in the world. I mean, are we going to start hemorrhaging more nurses and doctors and specialists and surgeons? I think there's an, unfortunately a real risk that that will happen because one of the characteristics of the NHI will be comprehensive state controls. The state will decide what fees should be paid to doctors, surgeons, and so on. It will also decide on the cost of medicines, um, of every other uh, product that is needed in healthcare, um, and it will decide on the treatment protocols to be used and the medical technologies that can be permitted, and so on. And I think that there there will be a great concern among many health professionals that this is an overbearing degree of state control that many may be worried too about how quickly their payments will come through. Uh, the state is trying to reduce that by saying they're going to pay on a lump sum basis rather than on a fee-for-service basis, but they're nevertheless going to be depending on an inefficient state to pay them. And there was research recently conducted by Solidarity, which is a, a, really a trade union, I suppose, here. And it went out to ask among existing health professionals what they think about the NHI and how they would respond to it. And about 43% said they would consider immigrating if the NHI was brought in, which is quite a startling figure. And were that to happen, the the impact would be enormous. And the other problem too is that because so few of, of of the state facilities function well, if one goes back to what I was saying about the Office of Health Standards Compliance and that they're very few that are able to meet the basic norms and standards, that has another spin-off. They wouldn't be able to participate in the NHI. So we have a situation where at at present, only about 15% of public clinics and hospitals would qualify to participate in the NHI. So that would put a huge burden on the private sector ones, which can get accredited and can participate. Um, And that also might make many of our private practitioners feel that they just cannot cope with the workload and that they would prefer to immigrate to some other country where their skills are better appreciated and the burden on them is less unrealistic. I do wonder about the mental gymnastics 
that the ANC's leadership have to go through where there is this gap between their policies and how they live their private lives. You know, just thinking with Mugabe's death, this is also a conundrum <laughs> that ZANU-PF faced. So you're advocating that no one can have private medical care in the future. Uh, you're thinking about prescribed assets. You are um, expropriation without compensation. You haven't invested in education. And yet all of these leaders have their children in private schools, belong to discovery. The aspiration of a lot of the emerging middle class is to own property. How far can we stretch this sort of cognitive dissonance between <laughs> policy and reality? It is crazy. And, and certainly, you know, in the opinion polling that we've done too, um, and which was done for ENCA, it's clear that the, the rank and file of South Africans, including a number of people who identify themselves as ANC voters, they want jobs, growth. They're not interested in radical redistribution. They're much more conservative in their views on economic policies and various other things. So there's this big gap between what ordinary people want and what the ANC branch members who vote the delegates to the ANC's national conferences want. And that seems to be ideologically driven in a way that just doesn't resonate with the great majority. And if one looks at medical scheme membership too, and it's wonderful coming out of our apartheid past, that 66% of medical scheme members are now black or 34% white. And that's a, a trend that you would like to see. So it's starting extended. to normalize. Mm. Yeah, rather than cut short. And I also read an interesting comment a little while ago um, from a representative of, of trade unions. And of course, um, most of, of the members of the public service now belong to Kasata unions and the Kasata leadership is very keen on the NHI. But Kasata members, I think, are wary about the idea that there's going to be only one single state-run medical aid fund for the entire country. They said there has to be a choice. And yet the ANC has the the 55% support in the National Assembly. It'll be backed by the economic freedom fighters on this issue. So it's likely to go through Parliament, no matter what the objections that might be made. And that just creates a greater sense that the distance between the ANC and its and the great majority of South Africans keeps growing all the time. And that might explain why 10 million people voted for the ANC in the last election, whereas 20 million who could have voted stayed away from the polls. And that really indicates that ANC policies are not speaking to the great majority of South Africans. And yet, because there isn't a clear alternative that people feel they can espouse, or because perhaps of some level of economic intimidation that some opinion polls have uncovered, people don't go and vote for other parties. They stay away from the polls in the belief that thereby they're signaling their disapproval of the ANC. But the party is still able to proceed with policies which I think do not resonate with the grassroots at all. So we have a strange situation of seemingly populist policies that aren't actually popular. Yes, indeed. And, and, and you mentioned expropriation without compensation. For years now, opinion polling has been picking up that very few people see land reform as a priority for the government. They, they want the government to address unemployment, unemployment education, yeah. housing, service mm. delivery. But land reform comes way, way down below. Uh, it's sort of mentioned by 2% of respondents among black respondents or something that they would like to see the government tackle. 
this is such an important bill and I think it's going to impact so many of not just you know my listeners but the middle class the whole of South Africa what should listeners watch out for what are the next stages as a bill evolves will there be public consultation is there an opportunity to give input or to object what happens next Certainly there is an opportunity to make public inputs. The the bill has been tabled in Parliament. Public comments have been invited by the Portfolio Committee on Health. The deadline is the 11th of October, so they've allowed actually quite a short period of time for public consultation. And some people are now urging an extension for that period so that people have a more realistic opportunity to get to grips with what the NHI means and then make their views known. It's also going to be difficult for the public to comment when the bill is such a really a framework document. It basically just says, uh, says we're going to establish the NHI fund. It will have various subunits. It will be appointed by the minister. We'll decide in time how it's going to be financed, what benefits it's going to offer. There's just so little information for people to get their teeth into. And what should have happened is that there should have been a comprehensive social economic assessment document. Uh, report which accompanied it, which would help people to get grips with what are the pros and cons of what's being proposed, were there better options that were considered, why were those options ruled out. But in the absence of that kind of report, people just have to do the best with the limited information that they have. Um, So after the, the National Assembly process, there'll be the written submissions, there'll be an opportunity for some people to make oral presentations in Parliament. And then there'll be a National Council of Provinces procedure, because this has been tagged as a a bill which affects the provinces, quite rightly, because health is a matter of concurrent jurisdiction between national and provincial administrations. So each of the nine provinces must also have a public consultation process. But often at the provincial level in particular, uh, the whole process is really incredibly rushed. Public meetings are held with a day's notice of them, nobody can get hold of the bill or any information about it. And it really seems that they just go through the motions rather than really inviting any substantive comment. And that can be a basis for striking down legislation as it was with the bill that, that reopened the land claims process in 2014. Overall, there are also questions about constitutionality, which the government is refusing to take seriously at present but which in the end it might be compelled to look at quite carefully. Uh, One of the issues is provincial powers because um, health is a provincial competence and the NHI is really going to vastly diminish the capacity of provinces to have a role in healthcare. There are real concerns that the, the state law advisor has tried to bat that away and say it's all fine. And there's also a real question as to whether the government's complying with Section 27 of the Bill of Rights, which says that it has to take reasonable measures to extend access to health care. And the NHI is arguably not a reasonable measure when better options are available. Mm. And it has to act within its available resources. And again, at a time when we have such rapidly mounting debt, such limited growth, um, and there are more cost-effective options available, It just seems difficult for the government to argue that this is truly within its available resources. And that's another basis on which constitutionality could be challenged. Okay, so the whole thing has an air of being quite rushed, perhaps, and being uh, bulldozed through, despite there being a lot of concern in the system. And am I right in saying that they did actually run 
pilots and that the results from those pilots were not overwhelmingly positive. It didn't make game-changing positive impact on the, on the clinics and areas where it was tested. That's exactly so. So, you know, given the fact that the pilots didn't show major improvements, one wonders why we should believe that the NHI as a whole, when this very complicated bureaucratic system is rolled out across the whole country, that it will fare better. The, the pilot evaluation was just shoddily done, which is the sort of thing that raises questions too. No baseline data was gathered, so it was really difficult to tell whether what had been achieved was an up or a down. And it seemed that many of, of the GPs who joined had been working in the state, then they saw that they could get more money through the NHI pilots. So they resigned from the state and then came to the NHI pilot sites as, as GPs in private practice. It, but it was really also not a true test of, of whether how many GPs would genuinely want to participate in and how effectively this would work. And many of them did complain that there were stockouts at the clinics, that they had so little equipment available to them that they couldn't provide proper health care. And again, there was, I think, from the, the side of the participating GPs, a lot of dissatisfaction that was reported in the press a while ago. So much of it comes back to the supply chain issue that we were discussing. Just a last question, Anthea, before we finish off. You were talking to me last time about also concerns about how much the governance structure of the NHI is concentrated in the executive. And this is something that we're seeing more and more as the ANC comes up with new policies and new bills, which is that ministers hold disproportionate power as opposed to committees, parliament, um, other structures and democracies, which normally provide oversight and you know professional input into these sort of complex systems. The minister has disproportionate decision-making power. Is that right? That is absolutely correct, because it's the minister that appoints the NHI fund, in essence. It will have a board, um, but it will be appointed by the minister and accountable to the minister. And so the various units that will be set up to decide, for example, on the fees payable to providers, or the way in which procurement should be managed, or the way in in which the possibility of fraud is to be mitigated, will all be in a structure that's ultimately answerable to the minister. And the same will apply to the Office of Procurement, which will be established as a separate entity. And the same will apply to the Appeal Tribunal, which will be set up to hear complaints from the public against the NHI. And I fear that there may be many such complaints because if there isn't enough money, there aren't enough supplies and there aren't enough doctors in essence, then people will wait for long periods to get any service. And it may be even worse than what we have now faulty as it is in the public service. And what's also worrying is that this is very much a framework bill. We just don't know so much of how it's actually going to work in practice. And that will be decided at the end by obscure bureaucratic practices. The minister will have major powers to issue regulations and directives. And it's all very much executive controlled. Whereas and very much centralized in the way it's executive controlled. Parliament will have very little input. Provinces will have very little input. Um, the, the medical schemes will be squeezed out. And this all seems to smack of a level of state control, which is really not a good idea in any country, and particularly not in a country which has the governance problems which South Africa has experienced, most recently characterized by the whole state capture debacle and the concern that 1.4 trillion rand has been lost through that. 
Anthea, to finish off, this is such an interesting topic. Um, are there any resources, websites or books that you would recommend that listeners follow or track to keep up to speed with this, with the development of the NHI? I would recommend, of course, that, the, that people should look at the IRR's own website um, and also something called the Daily Friend, which is where we, we, we post um, op-eds and um, videos and podcasts on a daily basis, which cover a range of topics, but often will deal with updates on the NHI. Uh, the DA, I think, is probably also a very good source of information. And um, then there's something called the Healthman Consultancy, which has been very active over a number of years in monitoring NHI proposals, and it has close contacts with the medical profession as well. So it really also has a has, has a a very good idea of how medical practitioners are reacting to the NHI and what they think of it. So I'd say those are our three key sources. And just as a final thing, something that I've recently become more concerned about, based also on what the, the health minister said in parliament, is that new taxes are going to be raised. They could be very high, but there is no mechanism in the NHI bill to make sure that those taxes are used for health care. And uh the National Treasury would have to adopt further legislation in which it does earmark those taxes for healthcare. If it doesn't, everything goes into the National Revenue Fund and can be used for any purpose. And as uh, Dr. Zueli M. acknowledged, the, the Treasury is concerned about that kind of, of allocation, that kind of uh, saying that we'll make sure that whatever is raised by way of these particular taxes is then allocated to the NHI because they said, well, we, we might get more than is needed for the NHI and then that would be a bad idea. But of course, it might also mean that in some ways this proposal is another way of bringing in more taxes, which the government urgently and desperately needs to do and not necessarily using them all for healthcare, which would be a complete travesty. That's a really interesting angle. So the NHI policy as a pretext to raise taxes and then as soon as that revenue comes in, maybe using it to cross-finance our struggling SOEs <laughs> or to, um, mm. or, you know, or just to be stolen, as it does feel is the case. Well, and we've seen that with other things. You know, the sugar tax which came in has not, has not been ring-fenced for health issues and trying to con deal with obesity. The, the carbon tax is not being ring-faced ring and trying to deal with the transition to a lower carbon economy. It just economy. goes into the general pot. It just goes into the general pot, yeah. Anthea Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica. That's it for today, and we will be back next time with a fascinating interview about cyber warfare and South Africa. I'm invincible! You're a loony. <laughs>